we are in the book of Ephesians, um, and we are coming close to, to an end. We are in chapter 6, which is the last chapter of the book. Uh, the last couple of weeks, or the last few weeks, we've heard about uh, wives and husbands, and how to uh, respect and honor one another, and we've heard about children and parents, and how uh, we can outwork that that relationship in a healthy, godly, Christ-like way. Um, And today we move on to slaves and masters. This is not an easy uh, passage. It's not an easy section of scripture. So I'm going to pray before we start, not just because of that, but also because I've got a stinking cold, which I've had all week, (laughs) which you might be able to hear. Uh, But I need God's help this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it is truth and that it is life to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we turn to your word now, as we uh, read these verses together, Lord, that you would stir up in us a, a desire, a passion for your name. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you reveal things to us that maybe previously we haven't seen. Uh, Lord, would you help us to digest your word, Lord, to, to take it in and for it to affect us and to change our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are going to turn straight to Scripture. Often I'll say some bits at the beginning, but we're just going to read the whole passage uh, right off at the start. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and it's verses 5 to 9. It says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with so I'll turn that books up there as well. No, back one. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Okay. Uh, I don't know what you uh, think of when you hear the word slavery. You might have just seen, but I'm guessing it would probably be something like this. So these are a couple of pictures of the American slave trade, uh, where three million black Africans were transported across the Atlantic from 1492 to 1807. Um, It was horrific, uh, and it was, uh, well, I'll give you some reasons, four, four reasons I've written why the American slave trade was wrong and evil. I'm sure there are more than this, but the, this is four reasons. One was that it was one race ruling over another race as if they were the favored race. Um, so you had the, the kind of white uh, Westerners taking these African slaves as though that they were superior um, and forcing them to work. Second reason is that people, treated, people were treated as possessions uh, they were treated as the possessions of their masters. So these people were bought and sold simply as commodities, as possessions, rather than as human beings. The third reason is that American slavery was a lifetime status for most. Um, people 
People weren't just taken and forced to work for a year or two and then returned to where they'd come from. This was a lifelong thing. Uh, they were taken with no, no intention to return them to where they'd come from. And the fourth thing is that children, were, children who were born into slavery were also the slaves' possessions, uh, the, the slave master's possessions, sorry. So it wouldn't just be the people that were taken, but their children, their grandchildren, uh, their descendants were also sold into slavery uh, and were, were considered to be the possession of their masters. Clearly, this was an evil and horrific uh, trade industry. And most of us will have learned something about this probably at, at school uh, or through documentaries and films that have been made since. I don't know how many people saw 12 Years a Slave, uh, but that was a really, really powerful film uh, just to uh, kind of get a, an understanding of how could this happen? Like, what, what was going on here? This was an evil trade. People are made by God. People belong to God. People are made with dignity, with value, and with incredible worth in the image and likeness of God. And to treat a person as you would a piece of property or livestock even, they were often just considered, you know, I'll, I'll give you four cows and three slaves, um, kind of considered in that same bracket. To consider people as simply possessions is to disrespect the image and likeness of God that they bear. The Bible condemns this practice as evil and inhumane. And that's how American slavery was practiced. We have to be careful in reading this passage not to impose our perspective and our understanding and our cultural kind of biases of this uh, onto the passage. The American slave trade came 1,400 years after this passage was written, and Roman slavery would have looked quite different. Quick caveat before people start walking out. I'm not saying that Roman slavery was absolutely fine uh, and that the Bible wholeheartedly endorses it. It certainly doesn't, and we will get to that. But we do need to appreciate that there were some significant differences between how we might think of slavery as a result of images like this um, and what Paul is, the, the context that Paul is writing into. <clears throat> Most Roman slaves were prisoners of war. Uh, they had not been, sorry, had they not been enslaved on the battlefield, uh, then they would have in all likelihood just been killed um, and slaughtered in that, in that context. Um, some, some became slaves for a period of time to pay off a debt. So if you imagine taking out a loan, and as part of the agreement for that loan, you make an agreement that if, they're un- if you're unable to pay this off, uh, that you would agree to work and to be enslaved for a period of time in order to pay off that loan. So that, that also was quite common practice in the Roman world. And some others simply chose to become slaves um, because actually being a slave gave you more, more rights in some sense, well, not, not so much rights, but a, a better uh, kind of way of living than if you were just living free but so poor that you're unable to provide for yourself or have any kind of, um, uh, uh, yeah, any kind of living standard, basically. Unlike the American slave trade, most Roman slaves could win or earn their freedom uh, within a decade. 
Again, this, this doesn't make it right. I'm not trying to justify uh, the, the Roman slave trade. I'm just, just sharing facts with you. Um, but this isn't generations and generations and generations of slaves uh, given over to, to one master. Most Roman slaves were given the op- option, the opportunity to earn their freedom. It's estimated that in Ephesus, around the time of writing, uh, there would have been around 250,000 free citizens, and they would have been outnumbered by about 400,000 slaves. Uh, And life for the poorest free citizens would uh, often have been much more severe and more difficult than the lives of the slaves. Slave owners had a vested interest in ensuring that their slaves were well-nourished and rested. So being freed from slavery, in a legal sense, didn't necessarily look like true freedom uh, or even improve living conditions for for that individual in that context. That said, Paul is not endorsing slavery as a good thing in this passage. Um, and we need to look at the Bible as a whole rather than just these few verses before jumping to the conclusion that from, here, from these few verses we can see that the Bible is pro-slavery. As various people have tried to do in the past, they've taken these verses and said, well, the Bible is clearly pro-slavery and that's why I'm not going to be a, a Christian. Let's, let's look at some other verses. One Timothy one nine to ten says the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers, for enslavers. Um, and that word enslavers there is those who uh, take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. And He's listed there amongst uh, murderers, uh, amongst the ungodly, the unholy sinners. Uh, This is clearly seen as a very negative thing. And this is Paul who's writing this, the same person who's written these words that we've just read in Ephesians. Uh, In uh, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul encourages slaves to gain freedom if it's an option. He says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He's saying, if it's possible for you to be free from slavery, then then do so. In our Ephesians passage, uh, Paul tells the masses that they ought to view their slaves as equals. Uh, Ephesians 6, 9 that we just read, masters do the same and stop your threatening. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And Paul also encourages uh, Philemon to release Onesimus uh, from slavery and to treat him as family. He, He says this, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Clearly, Paul's, uh, Paul is not simply pro-slavery. Uh, these are just a few examples of Paul himself saying, don't, don't be a slave. If, it, if, it's, if it's possible for you to not be, then, then don't be. Um, and encouraging slave masters to treat their slaves with respect, with dignity, and as equals. Clearly, Paul is not pro-slavery, and neither should we be. Slavery is intrinsically against the heart of God. Many of us will have read uh, in our Explore groups recently the story in Exodus. I'm just going to move this aside. Uh, God's people 
sought refuge in a time of economic downturn and famine in the, in the land, and they went to the, the, the nation of Egypt. And there they expanded in number to the point where they go from a family of perhaps a, a few dozen, maybe five dozen people, to a nation of a few million. And some 400 plus years later, they're all owned by Pharaoh as slaves. They're oppressed, mistreated, abused, and even murdered. That's unjust, but God doesn't ignore it. Uh, you hopefully will have read in your midweek groups these verses from Exodus chapter 2. It says this, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Over the next chunk of Exodus, we see God miraculously rescuing his people from slavery. God hears the cry of his people who are enslaved. God's people didn't appreciate it when it was done to them. And God's people should continue to oppose it now when it's done to anyone else. This is a a quote from a guy called Rodney Stark. And it says this. Of all the world's religions, including the three great monotheisms, only in Christianity did the idea develop that slavery was sinful and must be abolished. Although it has been fashionable to deny it, anti-slavery doctrines begin to appear in Christian theology soon after the decline of Rome and were accompanied by the eventual disappearance of slavery in all but the fringes of Christian Europe. When Europeans subsequently instituted slavery in the New World, the Americas, uh, they did so over strenuous church opposition, a fact that was conveniently lost from history until recently. Finally, the abolition of New World slavery was initiated and achieved by Christian activists. Christians led the fight against slavery in the early 19th century, and Christians still lead the fight against slavery today. Organizations like Stop the Traffic, um, an international justice mission who we support and partner with as a church, have been set up by Christians, by people who recognize that all human life has incredible value, and that because we are made by and belong to the same God, this cannot continue. We have a responsibility, X1, to be engaged in this fight. We have a responsibility to be aware of what's going on in our world. There are as many slaves today as there have been in the whole of human history. That is shocking, and it's, it is not okay. Individuals, people are made in the image of God. They are brothers and sisters across the world. They have equal value and worth to us. We'd be horrified to hear that somebody that we know has been taken uh, from just from their homes, from where they live, and taken halfway across the world and just sold into slavery, forced to work against their will, abused and mistreated. Can you imagine if that was a, a child of somebody in the church? It, it doesn't bear thinking about, and yet this, this goes on. There, there are estimated to be, I think, 93 million slaves in the world today. And it is Christians, it is Christians who are going to be on the front line of opposing this, who are going to be on the front line of coming against this horrific and evil uh, industry. 
which, which is an industry. It creates billions. It creates absolutely billions of, of pounds of dollars across the world. Um, and so it's not an easy battle to oppose. It's not, this isn't a simple thing for us to overcome, but it is worth our time. It is worth the fight. In, in our Explore groups, uh, recently as a church, we've been going through a, the God of Justice series together, looking at God's heart for justice, looking at how God sees what's going on in the world, and it breaks his heart, and for us to have a similar heart. We, as a church, have a mission freedom group. Uh, there's a group of us who meet regularly to just find out what's going on in the world, to hear the latest about some of the, uh, some of the kind of horrific practices and trades and what we can be praying into, uh, what organizations are, are doing to try and oppose those things, to try and put in good and right infrastructure and judiciary systems. If that's something that you want to be a part of, if you want to come and join our Mission Freedom Group to, to be able to actively pray into some of these situations, um, then you can chat to myself or chat to Kat at the end. Um, we also, as I said earlier, we support an organization called IJM, uh, International Justice Mission. We're going to have a rowathon uh, in later in this year, in the summer, where we're going to be uh, raising money and raising awareness by by going into a gym and using the rowing machines to row at the distance. It's across Lake Volta, isn't it, uh, in Ghana? Um, so one of the one of the lakes in Ghana where slavery is is practiced heavily, where boys are taken and forced to fish uh, from a very young age in dangerous conditions. The, the, the kind of distance of Lake Volta, we're going to go and we're going to try and row as a team, as a group, that distance um, to raise money and to raise awareness about uh, what's going on there. If you want to be involved in that, if you want to come support, if you want to do some rowing, it'd be great uh, to have you involved in that. But freedom is a fight well worth fighting. I'd encourage you to get involved. Paul knew that true freedom was more than simply no longer being someone's slave. You see, whilst it's easy to read this passage and to get caught up with the, the question of slavery, the fact that it's talking about slavery, uh, which is why I, I wanted to address that first. In fact, the question that this section of Scripture asks is this. Who are you serving? In Galatians, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. He doesn't mean it's totally irrelevant whether you're a slave or not. As we read before, he encourages people to gain their freedom, if at all possible. But he says the thing that makes the greatest difference to your life is whether or not you're serving Christ Jesus. Paul knows that true freedom means no longer being a slave to sin. It means being set free from the bondage of sin and death. That's what's going to make the greatest difference to your life. And it means being a slave, in fact, of Jesus Christ. It's not whether or not you're a slave, but who you're a slave to. Uh, did you know this morning that the Bible calls you a slave? <laughs> you are a slave. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness and to Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not a case of whether you're a slave, but who are you serving with your life? Paul helps the Ephesian slaves to see that they are freer than their masters if they work as willing slaves of Jesus Christ. 
And he helps the Ephesian masters to see that, that they will only know true freedom if they recognize that they have an obligation towards their slaves because they are also slaves in Christ themselves. So Paul's emphasis in this passage that we read is not on slavery itself, but how should we conduct ourselves in every circumstance, even in situations that we don't believe are godly, but we're under the authority of. Does that make sense? Paul's encouragement is this. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you serve Christ at all times, whatever situation or context you find yourself in. And when you live for Christ, that is the most free you will ever be and the most rewarding and fulfilling life you will ever have. He says, uh, verses 7 to 8, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. If you are a Christian this morning, then you are a 24-7 servant of Christ Jesus. It's not just the work that you do on a Sunday morning, whether you're involved in the tea and coffee rotor, uh, or whether you are involved in the worship team, uh, whether you come early to help set up at the front. <coughs> Excuse me. That is service to God, but so is the whole of your life. And Paul says that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Uh, I don't know about you, but I find that equal parts encouraging and alarming. God watches all that you do in all areas of your life and is looking and ready and willing to give back abundantly uh, to those who are pursuing good in their, in, their, in their work, in their lives, and serving King Jesus with all their life. And that means that those times when you work really hard for seemingly little reward... Or when you do a job that perhaps goes completely unnoticed by others. Well, God is watching and he absolutely loves it. You are not primarily working for your benefit or for the benefit of your boss or for your company. You are primarily working and living for the sake of Christ Jesus. It's him that you serve with your life. But equally, God is watching as you waste that time and energy that he's given you, that he's gifted you, uh, those hours spent procrastinating, scrolling down Facebook messages and looking through photos, uh, when, you, when there are other things that you could and should be doing instead. God, God watches you uh, and you are serving God. You're serving Christ with the whole of your life, with all the time that you have. Andy Smith preached a couple of weeks ago um, and used a powerful image of imagining that Jess and Joel, who he got to stand up and stand behind him, uh, were, were shadowing you in all areas of your life. That they were, they were going with you um, and going into your, your workplace, going into your home life, whatever. Um, and he asked the question, would, be the, would there be certain times, uh, would there be certain situations, certain scenarios where you wouldn't want them to be there, where you'd want to ask them to leave the room, where you wouldn't want them to see what you're doing or how you are spending your time and your energy. Well, Paul tells us to live with the knowledge that you are always on duty as a follower of Christ and that the one you are serving is always Christ Jesus. Jesus. 
Oftentimes, these verses that we've just read in Ephesians are taken as instructions for how to serve God well as an employer or an employee. And that's a good and a right way to read the passage. In fact, they're just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago when they were written. They show us a completely different way to consider and to approach our places of work. They show us that the place where we spend the majority of our time, Monday to Friday, each week, is as much our place of worship as here at West Arts College on a Sunday morning. And the way that we work in as much, uh, is as much of an act of worship as our singing and our praising and what we were doing together earlier. So for the remainder of my time, I just want to look uh, a bit at our places of work and how we can use them as opportunities to serve King Jesus. Does God care about your job? That's a a big question. We worship the Lord Jesus who himself worked a job. Our God became a man and for roughly the first 30 years of his life, he worked with his dad as a carpenter, swinging a hammer, doing a job. Which means that Jesus spent the majority of his earthly life worshipping God as the perfect employee. Have you ever considered that? Jesus' worship didn't begin the day that he started preaching and teaching and healing and ministering to people. He worshipped the day that he began obeying as a child, obeying his mother and father and his heavenly father, and as an employee working under his father. We have a huge problem in and around uh, this area, particularly near London, in and around London, that people worship their work. As Christians, we do not worship our work. We worship Jesus, and our work is an opportunity for us to worship him. And then, so at one end of the spectrum, you have these people who worship their work, who idolize it, who give their time and energy and focus solely to their work. And then maybe at the other end of the spectrum, you have people for whom... uh, uh, they, they do whatever they can to avoid working. They, they get away with uh, kind of bare minimum, enough to get by, just enough to sort of survive, um, and they're not interested in doing more than that. And as Christians, again, that the same thing is true. Our work is an opportunity for us to worship Jesus. And so neither of those extremes should be reflected uh, in us as Christians. Are you worshipping him by working to the best of your abilities? And just to clarify, when I say work, uh, I don't necessarily mean just an employed job, uh, though some of what I say will be more relevant to to, uh, employees. Um, But the way in which you spend the majority of your kind of working week, whether you're employed, whether you're self-employed, whether you're studying, uh, whether you're looking after children uh, and the home, however you spend the majority of what you consider to be the working week. And I appreciate that will look very different for different people across the room. I just want to show you a short video clip, which I'm hoping will play. Um, And this is from uh, a TV show that I quite enjoy. Some of you may have seen it. And uh, this this is a character called Michael Scott. He's just gone into an office uh, and he's giving his philosophy of life, his philosophy of work.
<laughs> okay, you might have struggled to hear that a little bit. <laughs> uh, but that's Michael Scott's philosophy of work. Starting a sentence and not really thinking about where it's going until it's too late. Uh, and sort of stalling quite badly. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I just wanted to show you that, that short clip. Um, just to, sorry, I've lost my place on my notes. Hang on a sec. Uh, just to say, the first thing that I want to say is to seek wise counsel. <laughs> um, he, clearly, in this video clip, speaking to Michael Scott about his philosophy of work is not the wisest thing to do. Um, but if you want to know how to work well to the glory of God in whatever you do, then speak to people who have already done so. Ask them how they managed it, particularly if it's people who are Christians who are in the same, in the same work environment as you, maybe doing a similar or the same job. Ask them what they learned. Ask them how they, they lived out their faith, how they were able to worship God uh, in that job. Hopefully they'll be able to offer you years of wisdom and faithfully working well to the glory of God. Um, in preparation for this preach, uh, I chatted to a couple of guys, chatted to Mr. Mr. Kemp <laughs> uh, and uh, also to Peter Walls, um, and just asked them, like, how, how have you guys worked uh, over the years faithfully um, as, as kind of part of your worship to God? And so a lot of what I have to say actually comes from them. Um, but I'd encourage you, speak to people who can encourage you. If you're going through a really tough time at work, if it seems unbearable, or if, it, if, it, if you're just in a place where demands are being asked of you that you just don't feel are right, and you think, how can I, how can I work this out? How can I, how can I like, you know, bring together my faith and, and this job? Um, if there are people you can speak to and get advice from, then do. In our passage, Paul doesn't give a whole lot of instructions about how slaves should honour their masters. But he does say, with a sincere heart, and not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Why, why doesn't he say more than this? Why doesn't he give like a whole kind of list of instructions? Because... I think because he knows that, that that's enough. If you respectfully uh, if you respectfully obey your employer with a sincere heart, as though you're working for Christ, then all the details actually will, will work themselves out. Similarly for employers, he says, Masters, do the same. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven. If employers are treating their employees as they would like to be treated themselves and have a right reverence for God, then again, all of the kind of specifics of that should work themselves out. Growing within our culture, there is this uh, widespread rebellion against and a distrust of authority. Even in the clip that I just showed a few moments ago, uh, Michael Scott is, is almost kind of your stereotypical clueless boss. Uh, this, this guy who's inept and is inexplicably in this position of authority somehow. I don't know how he's got there. Um, and it's easy for us to kind of fall into that mindset of cynicism about authority figures uh, to get into that same idea that, oh, yeah, our boss is useless, isn't he? Yeah, I reckon I could do, my, I reckon I could do his job better. For many of us, there's a temptation to buy into that, that distrust uh, or undermining of authority figures. And for sure, authority figures can and have over the years caused harm when they abuse and misapply their power. But they can also be very good and very wise. 
we uh, looked a couple of weeks ago about husband, how husbands should love their wives the same way that Christ loved the church, not abusing their position as the head of the household, but sacrificially laying down their lives for their family and having a responsibility of standing before God to give an account for their family. They are accountable. In the same way, employers shouldn't be using their authority to take advantage of their employees, to make unfair and unreasonable demands of their employees, but instead should be seeking to serve their employees well. They are accountable for those who work under them. For the most part, if a team isn't functioning well, then it's the boss who gets gets the blame. In our anti-authority society, it's a hard and often thankless role to be a boss. So, for Christ's sake, don't make it harder for them than it already is. As Christians, we have an opportunity in our workplaces to actually to honour our bosses well, to not talk about them negatively behind their back, to not join in with the others when they criticise, when they're negative, when they uh, just mope about because, oh, I've been asked to do this, I don't really want to do it. You have an opportunity to actually make your, your boss's life a bit easier because they have a, a heavy burden to carry. And Paul encourages to do that. Paul encourages us to honour them well as though you're serving Christ to do what they ask, to obey them without grumbling, without moaning, without complaining, without putting up a battle, (laughs) without making their life hard work. As I was preparing for this morning, I was drawn to the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And I feel like they're often seen as quite nice or, to be honest, probably a little bit weak. Um, I don't know if it's because fruit's in there and people think, oh, this is a children's thing, you know, fruits, the fruits of the Spirit. Um, But if every Christian out there was living the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in their workplace, it would have an absolutely massive impact. So I want to challenge you how you can exhibit these characteristics in your workplace. Okay. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love. Do you love your place of work? Do you love the people that you work with and the job that you do? Do you pray for your colleagues? Do you pray for your boss? Do you share in their lives? Do you rejoice in their successes and genuinely commiserate in their failures? These people may be competitors or authority figures, But first and foremost, they are people made in the image of God, and he loves them intimately. Do you desire for God to bless and to prosper your company? Joy. It it seems to be very popular and even expected to consider your job as somewhere that you have to be rather than somewhere that that you want to be or somewhere that you're happy to be. Do you kind of perpetuate that mindset Or do you seek to bring joy into your workplace and into people's lives? Uh, Many of you will know that Kat's role in her company is the chief happiness officer, uh, the CHO uh, of Cirrus. Um, And she gets to to go in and to uh, get people cupcakes. And uh, she does work hard as well. It's not just all kind of frivolous stuff. Uh, But but one of her main roles is to bring joy into the workplace because she's good at it. And as Christians, we should be good at bringing a sense of joy into our workplaces. If you're you're getting suckered into just being like everyone else, being miserable, oh, it's Monday morning again, oh, how long till the weekend – you're not, you're not helping uh, to bring joy into your work context. 
um, I, I chatted to Peter Wiles a bit, and he said, it's good and right to enjoy your job. Um, and if you're not enjoying your job, then that, that is a problem. You shouldn't, you shouldn't just be in a, in a job where you're constantly hating it. That's not to say that you then immediately leave any job that gets difficult or frustrating or that you're upset with. The first thing you should do is to pray. Pray for your company. Pray, pray about whatever's difficult, whether it's a difficult person, a difficult project. Pray into that. Pray that God would either help you in that situation or that he would change your heart or that he would change the attitudes of the people that you're working with. Pray. Spend time praying. After doing that, if you've been in your job for a long, long period of time and you absolutely hate it, then I'd encourage you to speak to somebody about that. Maybe speak to one of us as an eldership team uh, and just to talk about, I don't think this job is right for me. I don't think God wants us to be in jobs where we're miserable for years on end. But as a quick caveat to that, again, I would say, don't just job hop. Give your job opportunity to actually provide job satisfaction. Don't say, I've been here three weeks and I'm still not really loving it, so I'm going to move on elsewhere. Be thankful for what God has given you. One of the things that Pete Kemp said is he's, he's thankful to God for, for what he's been given, for his hands, uh, the ability to work. Thank God for the gifts and the skills and the abilities that he's given you. Give thanks to God with joy. Peace. Increasingly, stress is proving not to just, just to be the cause of sleep, sleepless nights and worry in our society, but even breakdowns and even heart attacks. We live right next to one of the most highly stressed cities in the world. Not St. Albans, uh, but, but London. <laughs> As Christians, we're called to be ministers of peace to a stressed society. Do people at your workplace look to you as a calming influence, as somebody who's able to speak to them, to encourage them, to pray for them through difficult situations? Are you a peacemaking influencer? Patience. This is hard. It is. When you have deadlines and you're waiting on others and you're saying, come on, I really need that report now. Uh, It's hard to be patient in work sometimes. But there is no value in being impatient and unpleasant and irritable. Control your temper. And put your work into perspective. As hard as it may be to hear, the world won't stop spinning when you leave it. Life will go on. Business will go on. Patience is a virtue. Goodness. Um, Acting with integrity. We're called as Christians to be people who look different in our work context. And that means not uh, talking about others behind their back. Um, One time in my uh, my job... um, we ended up having our office relocated and I had a half hour journey uh, to work in a car with with some of the people, uh, with I think three other people. Um, So for a few months I was doing this journey and the whole way there and the whole way back it was just gossip, it was just talk about people in the office and why they're rubbish and what they're doing wrong and why they're useless. Don't get sucked into that crude joking, don't get sucked into that gossip. Do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. If you're only working when your boss is watching, then you are not worshipping Christ. We need to have that mindset. I am working for Christ. I'm going to continue to work hard whether I'm being watched right now or not. Kindness. 
work for others in the way that you would want that work to be done for you. Be that person to go that extra mile to, uh, to, to work for someone for the sake of serving Christ. Make the point of being that, that person who goes to speak to the new employee or make them feel welcome. Gentleness. There should never, ever be a need for you to motivate people through bullying, through anger, through aggression. Again, how are you being a gentle influence in your workplace? Faithfulness. <clears throat> One of the things that Pete says is you're only ever as good as your last job. (laughs) Continue to work hard. Don't let things slide. Don't rest on your laurels of of a project that you did last year. Continue to give of your best. Continue to work as though you're working for God. Be loyal to your company. Um, Don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're there forever, but it's also not job hopping and, and looking for every opportunity to move. Be dependable. Be known as a person who can be trusted and be depended on. And self-control. Don't be quick to anger, as I've said, and don't get sucked into a blame culture. Uh, one of the kind of immediate responses that we often get is to, when we're accused of something, is, is to deflect, is to kind of get sucked into blaming others. But don't, don't quickly respond have self-control. Don't be easily swayed by money and power, but by obedience to God. I'm aware that my time has gone and that there are children at the back. I'll just be one more minute. <laughs> Work hard and do good. And know that your job is not your identity. One of the, one of the, 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 the kind of reasons that, why people end up worshipping their work is because they see that as who they are. They see that as their identity. Your job is not who you are. I say that again. Your job is not who you are. You are first and foremost a child of the King. You are living and serving Christ Jesus. Uh, And, yeah, I'm going to skip that next bit. Jesus uh, didn't attribute worth to people based on job titles. He hung out with fishermen who were common workers, with tax collectors who were hated by most with prostitutes who were despised and downtrodden. He actually criticized and argued those who had titles and prestige, the Pharisees and the rulers who thought that they were deserving of their significance and status. Jesus Christ was a lover of people. He's the one that I want to live for. He's the one that I want to give my worship to. And he's the one that I want to honor in my day-to-day life. And I want to encourage you to do the same. I'm going to pray, and then we have got some Mother's Day gifts for people. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge, Lord. And I I pray that for each of us, we would consider how we can serve you better, how we can serve you well in our day-to-day context. Lord, help us to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in a way that uh, is both evangelistic, Lord, that, that makes others, points others towards you, um, and is kind and honoring to both our employees and our employers. Lord, would you help us to do that by your Holy Spirit? Lord, would you, in those difficult situations, those difficult scenarios, Lord, would you give us the strength and the courage to live for you well at all times? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.